Amen. Please be seated. Seated. Think about that word. The resurrection of Christ, uh, which we celebrate today and every Lord's Day, has very much to do with a seat, a chair. Uh, There's a lot of famous chairs in history. If you were to do a simple search, we would find and discover chairs such as King Edward's chair uh, from the 14th century. A wooden chair, I believe it resides in Scotland. It's been used over the centuries to coordinate monarchs. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's chair, a red upholstered rocking chair at the Ford Museum in Michigan. Uh, What about William Shakespeare's uh, courting chair in Poland at the National Museum? Chairs are a regular and important, in some ways, important part of our lives. Not only for the physical support that they provide, the utility Uh, purpose, but because the chairs we sit in, in some ways, represent aspects of our lives. The chair that we take when we gather around uh, the table, that space that we have around the table when we enjoy a meal with our uh, spouse, our family. Some of you will sit in some particular chair this afternoon, sharing time with family and friends. What about that chair that some of us sit in at at the desk to carry out our vocation, our work? That reading chair? Maybe you have a particular seat or place you like to sit to do devotional time, to read your Bible. Uh, The rocking chair mom or dad uh, takes to rock their baby uh, to sleep. The pew that you sit in. That space you occupy Uh, when gathering with the saints of God to worship Him. Well, as we peer into the passage this morning, uh, in the book of Colossians, just four verses, it centers in some ways on a seat. It is the seat of our Lord Jesus Christ. That domain, that chair, of which only He is qualified to occupy. But we'll also see that we have a place with Him there. So it's Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, just four verses, 1 through 4. Listen now to the Word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Earlier, we sang that hymn, Were You There? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when He rose up from the grave? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble. Sometimes I feel like shouting, glory, glory, glory. Two questions emerge from that hymn that I think are critical in thinking about Paul's words here to the Colossians. One comes straight from the text. Were you there? Were you there at the cross? Were you there at the resurrection? And two, 
Does the cross and resurrection of Christ cause you at times, as the hymn says, at times, to tremble? Does it cause you at times to shout, to want to shout glory, glory, glory? When we think of the event and the message of the cross and the resurrection, can we sing, can we feel the words of Stuart Townsend's well-known song and lyrics, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. This is what Elder Jones was pointing out earlier in the service in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah takes it upon himself in the language. It's personal. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Do we see ourselves in that way? Whether a person knows Christ or not, whether one came to Christ as an adult and they know the time when they were converted, or there was never a time you could remember not loving the Lord and knowing the Lord, there is no person who enters the kingdom of the Lord, has fellowship with God without going through the door of seeing their sinful heart as cause for His suffering, His shed blood, His his dying breath. My sin upon His shoulders. Yet what Paul says here in Colossians is one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible. If then you have been raised with Christ, two verses later, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want us to see, first of all, the sort of foundational reality that Paul is laying down here. Let's examine some of these words and and aspects of these verses. The word if, if you're looking at the ESV, which is our pew Bible, is probably better translated since or because. It is true that there is no life with God if if this condition is not present. If one has not been raised with Christ. But Paul is not seeking to cause these hearers to question so much whether or not this truth is a reality for them. He's not doing what he does to the Corinthians in places. Examine yourself to see if you be in the Lord. Rather, what he's established in the first couple chapters really is the spirit of, since this is true for you, since this is true, do this. Seek the things above. Notice also... Paul speaks of dying, for you have died, and of rising. You have been raised. But the dying and the rising in both cases is not something future. If you look at the language, it is the past, past tense. For you have died. You have been raised. For the believer, this is something that has already happened. They've died and they have risen. So Paul is beginning to pull back the curtain here a bit to reveal a deeper reality about the believer's life. They are a person who has died in some way 
and have been raised. Before we walk behind and, and consider what's behind that curtain and that reality, let's remember what Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15 as he is reminding the Corinthians of what the gospel actually is. This is what he says, I would remind you of the gospel, the gospel I preach to you. Christ died for our sins. Later, he says then, Christ was raised on the third day. So the gospel is not that you and I died and were raised. Though we can say that is very, very good news. The gospel is that Jesus Christ was crucified. This man upon a cross. That he was raised with a new body physically on the third day. So the dying and the rising of which Paul speaks in, in Colossians for the believer only has meaning as it's identi identified with Christ, His death in history and His resurrection. And the resurrection was the event that not only moved the disciples to say, as Doubting Thomas would say, my Lord and my God, but it is what motivated, it is what fueled them to begin preaching with boldness this living God, this living Lord, Jesus Christ. It's not that resurrection was a new concept. That's not what was earth-shattering to the disciples and the early believers. It's not that they didn't believe resurrection would ever happen. The teaching of a resurrection was embedded and is embedded in biblical and Jewish thought. Remember when Jesus, in chapter 11 of John, went to console and comfort Mary and Martha in the death of Lazarus, Later, he would perform this supernatural work, bringing life again to Lazarus. Before that, though, Martha in her grief says this, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She believed and she understood, along with many others, that a resurrection of the dead would come. But it would come at the end of history. That's where things were moving and where things are headed. It was not the idea of resurrection that was new, what was new, what shocked the world, Jewish and Gentile, was that a single man who was crucified rose from the dead in the middle of history. In the middle of a world full and defined by illness, decay, and death. Because that meant the beginning of a reversal to the fallen and disordered world in which we live. It shocked. It was shocking. We could not anticipate that could not get their heads so much around that. Here we are, moving toward and into the springtime. It's not surprising to us that we're having warmer and warmer days. Please, come, more. But it's, it's more like a summer day coming right in the middle of February, moving through December and January with 15 and 20 degree days, and then all of a sudden you wake up right in the middle of February and it's an 80 degree day. Where did this come from? What is that? Surprising. Shocking. It's like going in the backyard, beginning to till up the ground, plant for seeds or flowers, and bang, you hit a box. A chest. It's full of treasure. Gold. Silver. It's unexpected. It's shocking. But it's not only shocking, the resurrection, it is meaningful. 
it means that not only is death crushed and overcome, but it means the same power that God displayed when He spoke and the creation came into existence. That which did not exist before breaks forth. That power, that same power displayed, was at work in the resurrection of Christ. New creation. It's new body. Resurrection is not resuscitation, like Lazarus. Lazarus would be brought back to life, but would go on and then die. This is new creation, a new body. His body is incorruptible, eternal. So new creation was breaking forth amidst a fallen creation. So we celebrate the resurrection not only because of what it means for the future, but what it means now. Life and death are realities that it seems to me everyone by and large accepts. Regardless of culture, religious views. I was present at all three of my children's births. Uh, I have served at over 70 memorial services. I've personally known no person to deny the reality of physical life and physical death. These are realities people know and they accept. But Paul is bringing us behind the curtain to a deeper reality. Paul says in Christ's death, the believer died to his old sin nature. That nature that defined his life. It was crucified. In that well-known verse in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So there was a real but invisible killing or crucifixion that took place for everyone who is a Christian. And I have been raised with Christ. The new, resurrected life of Christ has penetrated, pierced the believer, causing new creation. That's why we can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New life emerges. There is no person who will be redeemed or saved simply because they believe that Christ was crucified or believed that Christ was raised. We celebrate these events, the death and resurrection of Christ, but we would miss completely what Paul, what God Himself would have for us if we do not also see that we ourselves must be crucified and risen with Him. It's not merely a belief that, it is a belief in or even into Him. Which is why Paul, perhaps surprisingly, not once refers to believers as Christians. We are, as believers, Christians, followers of Christ, but rather the most frequently used words to describe the believer that that Paul employs are those in Christ and Christ in them. Dozens and dozens of times throughout the New Testament. We are those in Christ, Christ in us. This is the doctrine of union. Union with Christ. He's the head of the body, united. He's the the, the vine. We are the branches, united. Our confession describes it not as a physical union, 
but a mystical and inseparable union in which we receive all the benefits of Christ. I was kind of racking my mind over the last week trying to surface some kind of illustration to capture union with Christ. My best thought went to our younger parenting days when we we had infants. And some of you know this well. There are baby carriers in which you can kind of wrap your child so well, so close to your chest, your your hands are free. We we love those. I enjoyed them. Very helpful. You were that close, that tight, right? But as close as that is, we can't say they are in us or we in them. It's nowhere close to the union the believer has with the Lord Jesus. And this is why John Calvin concludes as he thinks about this doctrine of union with Christ. He says, For my own part, I'm overwhelmed by the depth of this mystery and I'm not ashamed to join Paul in acknowledging at once my ignorance and my admiration. Whatever is supernatural is clearly beyond our own comprehension. Let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us than to discover the nature of of this intercourse, this union with Him. We simply can't plumb the depths to understand fully this great union, but its effects are amazing and immense. Just a week or so ago, uh, while I was reading to our our family just after dinner through some of uh, the central tenets of of the Reformed uh, tradition, our particular uh, tradition, I came to the person of Christ and that title, Son of God. And I simply asked, how is Jesus as the Son of God different than you and I as sons or daughters of God? Jesus is the Son of God. We are children of God. Israel is referred to as sons of God. The New Testament church are children of God. Well, the difference lies in part in that Christ is the eternally begotten Son. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He's always been, but He's the eternally begotten Son. In Colossians 1, Paul says, Jesus is the the image of the invisible God. By Him all things were created. And then he says, He is the firstborn. He's the firstborn. He is the one who has the rights to receive the Father's inheritance and ruling sovereignty. He's that son. Well, what inheritance does the father have to grant to the son? How about everything? Everything. All things. And we are sons and daughters by adoption, which is why we are not inheritors yet. We are called co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. All that is his becomes ours, by virtue of our union, being joined to Him. So His death becomes ours. His resurrection, ours. All that He accomplished, justification and adoption and sanctification, glory to come, is ours because we are united to Him. This is what Paul is after in part in the language of raised with Christ and seated at the right hand of God. In Ephesians 2, Paul puts it this way, Even when we were dead in sin, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Raised and seated in heavenly places. Well, aren't you sitting in a pew? What does this mean? Raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. It's true, Christ is physically risen. The disciples saw Him ascend physically. He is in a physical locale. But the language of the right hand of God, He is seated at the right hand of God, and the language of heavenly places, as Calvin says, is referring to the domain of the power of God. It's not so much a locale, but a domain of power. Because where is God's right hand? Where is God? Psalm 139. If I ascend to heaven, Lord, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of Sheol, you're there. If I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. He's here. His right hand is not referring first to a place, but to His power, His sovereignty, His rule, His reign. And you are seated with Christ there. If this be true, if you've been raised to newness of life and you're seated with Christ, how should we then live? That's what Paul's seeking here. Something very practically. How should we be living our lives given this reality? This is the practical outcome. This is what he says. If you've been raised, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above, not earthly things. Well, what does this language mean? Earthly things here does not mean the flesh or riches or houses or jobs or as one commentator put it, any other thing of this present life. Earthly things here, as Paul is confronting, if you read through Colossians, he's confronting false teachers in Colossae, we could say earthly things is referring to live out the Christian life or faith by any principle, any power, any path other than the person of Jesus Christ Himself. Life with and in Him. It is this person, His character, His gospel, His word, His spirit, His presence, it is Him that Paul is urging them to set their minds and hearts upon. It's wonderful. If you look at the language Paul uses through this letter, it is so saturated with Jesus Himself. That's where he's pointing people. This individual, this person. Chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. The next verse. By Him, all things came into existence. The next verse. He is before or above all things, and in Him, all things hold together. He's the one through, through whom all things were made, and He is the one who sustains all that is. The next verse, chapter 1, verse 18, He is the head of the church, that in all things He might be preeminent. The next verse, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through Him all things are reconciled. He's the great peacemaker. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. 
Paul is wanting to guard or protect them from, from going down some other path to live out their Christian faith. It is about life with and in Jesus Christ in this great union. Here's another way to put it. That great verse, Hebrews 12.1, since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race set before us. And then he says, laying aside sin, and he says, laying aside every weight. Listen to John Calvin's words on this. Since he uses the metaphor of a race, he bids us to be unhindered. For there's no greater hindrance than to be burdened with luggage. There's all kinds of burdens which delay and impede our spiritual race. Love of this present life, pleasures of the world, desires of the flesh, earthly cares, riches, honors, and everything else of this kind. But what a helpful picture in thinking about the race that we are to run. I like to run. I'm a runner. I'm slow enough. I don't want to be dragging a suitcase, right, with me. That's kind of the image he's giving. Why would we bog ourselves down with with anything that's going to impede me giving my life to Christ and living after Him? So it's not riches. It's not houses or food or chores or clothing or relationships or any other thing in this present life that makes it earthly. It becomes an earthly thing when it begins impeding and hindering your pursuit your race, your life, with and in Jesus Christ. Our Lord desires that as we live this present life, our central aim, our single focus is to know Christ, to live with Him, to grow to know Him, to rest in His Word and promises, to love His beauty and His grace, to see His character worked out in our lives. One of the greatest evangelists Uh, most powerful of preachers throughout church history who ever lived was George Whitfield, a leading figure of the 18th century uh, revival and spread throughout Britain and uh, the gospel throughout Britain and colonial America, uh, an instrument that God used likely to convert thousands upon thousands of souls. He was a member of John Wesley and Charles Wesley's Holy Club in Oxford, if you're familiar with that really the beginnings, if you will, the roots of Methodism. Well, later, Whitfield, in his 50s, he preached all the way till 1770, I think at the year of his death. But later, in his 50s, he's reflecting on his life and his conversion. And he writes about what it was that God used to convert his life. And it was a small book written by a young man a hundred years prior named Henry Scougal young Scottish minister who died at the age of 27, who served as as a professor of divinity at Aberdeen in Scotland for a year prior to his death. Bright young man. And Scougal writes a, a, a little book to encourage a friend who is struggling, struggling in his faith. And the book is called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. So listen to Whitfield here, reflect in his 50s upon his own conversion in life. It's a little bit longer, but worth hearing. Whitfield says this, When I was 16 years of age, I began to fast twice a week for 36 hours at a time. 
prayed many times a day, received the sacrament every Lord's Day, fasting myself almost to death all the 40 days of Lent, during which I made it a point of duty never to go less than three times a day to public worship, besides seven times a day to my private prayers. Yet I knew no more that I was to be born again in God, born a new creature in Christ, than if I were never born at all. I must bear testimony to my old friend, Mr. Charles Wesley. He put a book into my hands called The Life of God and the Soul of Man, whereby God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I know the place. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I can't help running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. How did my heart rise? How did my heart shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself a bankrupt. Yet shall I burn that book? Shall I throw it down? Shall I put it by? Or shall I search into it? I searched. And holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I am not a Christian, if I'm not a real one, God, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is that I may not be damned at last. I read a little further. Oh, says the author, they that know anything of religion, of Christianity, know it is a vital union with the Son of God, Christ formed in the heart. Oh, what a ray of divine life did then break in upon my poor soul. From that moment, God has been carrying on His blessed work in my soul. And as I am now 55 years of age, I tell you, brothers, I am more and more convinced this is the truth of God. And without it, you never can be saved by Jesus Christ. And then he ends with a plea. Whitfield. Sinners in Zion, baptized heathens, professors but not possessors, formalists, believing unbelievers, talking of Christ, talking of grace, orthodox in your creeds, but heterodox, heretical in your lives. Turn ye, turn ye. Lord, help you to turn to Him. Turn to Jesus Christ and may God turn you inside out. May that glorious Father that raised Christ from the dead raise your dead souls. Bless the Lord that Jesus stands with pitying eyes and outstretched arms to receive you now. Will you go with the man? Will you accept of Christ? Will you begin to live now? May God say, Amen. May God pass by, not in anger, but in love. And say to you, dead sinners, come forth. Live a life of faith on earth. Live a life of vision in heaven. Even so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Though this faith journey is filled with trials and troubles, we not only look forward to the glory that is to come, of which Paul speaks of, the glory that is ours to come. But we taste of that glory now in Christ. And so we can sing, the King there in His beauty without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey though seven deaths lay between. The Lamb with His fair army does on Mount Zion stand and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. 
O Lord, what can we say in response to what You have made known in Your Word of this great union with Your Son, Jesus Christ, with You, Father, Son, and Spirit? O Lord, may our hearts be softened. May they be warmed by Your precious Word. May we know and taste more and more this risen life with Your Son, Jesus Christ. O Lord, how we worship You as the exalted Lord above heaven and earth. And yet, how we praise You as friend of sinners, the One who has drawn near. We pray, Lord, that as we respond to Your Word, as we seek to live out the journey that You've set before us, that we would not only know oneness with You, but with one another. The body, made up of many parts, but one. Unified by the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So bless each of us and bless us together as Your people. We commit, Lord, again our hearts to You, reverently, joyfully, and with thanksgiving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.